Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz Rana and on today's show I'm joined by the magazine editor of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Joe Harmon. Hello Yaz. And for the first time, the BBC's Ellie Oldroy. Hi, hi. Welcome to the show, Ellie. What was Thank your you. moment of the week? My moment of the week was Joss Butler getting 100. I mean, I know warm-up games are any warm-up games for a test series, but it feels to me as if, you know, we didn't see the best of Joss Butler during the Ashes, having had such a, you know, great series against India the previous year and then starred in the World Cup. He just looked exhausted to me going into the ashes, as so many of those players did, you know, really kind of wrung out, emotionally drained, as as we all were, let's face it, after the World Cup. So to then go and play in one of the most intense test series ever, but to see him scoring runs again. And I was actually listening to um, Five Live, quick plug for the employers, um, last night. And Marcus Truscothic was talking about the fact that they've been working together down in Taunton um, at actually at Butler's old school, so not not at the county ground, but but down in at, at his school, um, and and just Trez working with him on just little little kind of tiny changes that he can make, but also what he wants to get out of his batting, and if he wants to get out of his batting a permanent test place or a, a test place for as long as he wa- he wants it, and he's working with one of the greatest batsmen that we've produced in Marcus Truscothic, I think that's pretty good news for English cricket. Because he would have had so little time to work on his red ball batting over, well, over the last year. But to be honest, over the last four or five years, given his his fixture schedule. And um, we interviewed him just after the World Cup. And, and like you said, he admitted, he said he was knackered. He said it's really hard to go again after all the emotions. Um, almost leaving that World Cup behind and trying to focus on the Ashes was a real tough job. And it did seem like initially he he struggled perhaps more than most. Mm. I think when you look into the eyes of, of players, you can just see whether they're there or not. And a few of those England players that, that played in, in the World Cup and then the, the tests, I think Joe Root among them, just kind of had a thousand yard stare yeah. at that time. Just mm. because, you know, to to process everything that had happened. And then, as you say, focusing in on that completely different form of the game. And actually sitting here at the Oval, it makes me think, well, actually towards the end of the series, you know, they were getting back into it finally. But it's, you know, no sports psychologist in the world would say, this is good preparation mm. for an intense series. So please let us never have the World Cup and the Ashes in the same summer ever again. It was fun Amazing to watch. It was. Yeah. <laughs> on, on good preparation, 
as warm-up games go, this is a very competitive one. In the New Zealand 11, 10 of them had played international cricket. Uh, the pitch was quite interesting as well. Uh, it was it was quite flat. The ball didn't swing too much. England were trying to take some late New Zealand's second innings wickets to, to force result. And Will Somerville and Ajaz Patel, a pair without a first-class half-century between them, batted out 23 overs. So it was a really tough tough game for England that's a proper warm up because sometimes England just play a bunch of kids yeah all, all famous last words but it feels like pretty good preparation for what you can get for mm. test tours these days to play essentially against a fairly weak team and for Sibley and Crawley if he gets a chance later on in the series to to get some runs under the belt to get a bit of confidence and just to kind of get moving more than anything else and then after that to have a real proper test against a good side with players in that New Zealand A side who were fighting for a place in the test side really going at it that won't have been easy, an easy game for them and, and not for the first time. They found themselves a few down for not many runs on the board and, and it was good to see Pope get some runs. Butler obviously get his 100. Archer finally get a few for England who seems to forget how to hold a bat whenever he bats for England these days. Um, and then, yeah, to have that kind of tense-ish finish at the end where they're trying to force some wickets. So, well, we'll see come come the first test but it looks like yeah. that's a good preparation for me. Half century for Denley as well. That was good yeah. to see. Um for for an inconsistent team and with seven players in the squad under the age of 24, England have a remarkably settled side. The only selection conundrum was to pick Sam Curran or Chris Wokes at number eight. And it looks like England have gone for Curran. Ellie, do you think that's the right choice? Well, you talk about the number of players under 24. You think about the number of players who played together at Surrey as juniors. <laughs> you know, listening to, to, um, to, to Sibley and Burns talking about each other and the fact that I think, I think um, Burns used to drive Sibley to second 11 games you know when they when they were kids together but as you say you know Ollie Pope and 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 Curran as well in that mix so it's you know I, th- I think it, it, it is it does feel like as you say a, a settled batting lineup at last we hope but of course you mm. don't you don't really know until mm. until the test match starts do you yeah. how 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 that's going to work um, I mean it feels like Dom Sibley is is the right man for the right moment and I know Joe you you wrote about him uh, recently too and and I interviewed Jimmy Anderson about him last week and you know and, and Jimmy says he reminds him of Alistair Cook and if you've got Jimmy Anderson saying that somebody reminds him of Alistair Cook then that is as, as high praise as you can get. It's a nice story with Sibley and Burns so Sibley's second team debut for Surrey Rory Burns' opening partner Sibley's first class debut Rory Burns' opening partner and it'll be the same for his uh, test debut. And they stayed nice. obviously Sibley went off to Warwickshire but they stayed really good mates when I spoke to Sibley he was going to Burns' wedding a few days after that so mm. it is a really nice story I mean who knows how much it, it matters having a, having a mate down the end but it, it can't hurt can it mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I saw it was seeing as well that um, that Sibley roomed with Colin de Grandhomme or shared a house with Colin de Grandhomme oh, really? when he first went to Warwickshire I imagine he's really messy Colin de Grandhomme <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just breaking stuff accidentally <laughs> yes I should think, I should think you know do, do you think he'd be good at getting the bins sorted out and putting them out will he do pull his weight as a housemate well, well, I don't, he should I think be able to yeah well I can imagine him sort of like pulling the cord in the bathroom and just putting the whole thing down. <laughs> Sounds like a dodgy yeah. 1970s sitcom, doesn't it? Really? Oh, Colin. <laughs> well, on, on New Zealand, uh, the England series kicks off a massive winter for them. They're second in the ICE test rankings and play England at home, Australia away and India at home this winter. If results go their way, they can, in theory, end the winter top of the tree. If you look through their team, Latham, Raval, Williamson, Taylor, Nichols, DeGrandome, Watling, Satner, and then any combination of Bolt, Ferguson, Wagner and Southie. That's a wonderful set of players. Do you think they go into the series as favourites? 
Well, they, with a home record like they've got, you would you would think they would. Um, mm. And I think as as well. I mean, England, you know, feel like they've they've got a bit of momentum. They've got a bit of oomph back in them. But the Kookaburra ball is not their friend, really, mm. generally speaking. And I, and I think I wonder whether Chris Silverwood is talking very much about the Ashes being the long term focus. And perhaps this is this is part of the warm up. You know, I mean, obviously different conditions. You know, you haven't got the the heat mm. of Australia at this time of year. But but whether it it is it is a bit of a rehearsal for England and actually I mean who needs more motivation than New Zealand have to, to get one over on England finally I mean Trent Bolt saying at least we can't have a super over in a test match <laughs> so I would have thought I would have thought that you know New Zealand would be favourites I don't know what what you think Joe I think that's fair I think there's, there's the assumption when you look down that England side there are so many talented cricketers to think they're favourites in in most test series but actually particularly their record away from home doesn't really bear that out so I think and also um, when was the last time England won a test match 2000 and 2008 2008 so they haven't won a test match let alone a so series I mean, on, New Zealand. on that basis New Zealand the, have, the Ryan Sidebottom days they've got, be, yeah, they've got to be favourites I think that's not to say that England can't win by any means yeah. I think I think they, they've definitely got it in them um Two test series is, is frustrating. Yeah. Isn't well, it? why is it only a two test series? A because you know we love this rivalry between England and New Zealand, and it's also not part of the World Test Championship. Mm. So why? Yeah, I, it's really frustrating. And New Zealand get this a lot, even though they are one of the best test sides in the world and could potentially go to number one. They still get treated almost as a kind of not second tier, but like the one and a half tier. Mm. Uh, Australia don't really usually give them many test matches in Australia, which is great. They've got the Boxing Day test. That's a really, really exciting thing for New Zealand to have. And uh, regular listeners of the show might know my, my dad's a New Zealander and he's always, he's got a massive chip on his shoulder about Australia not playing New Zealand enough over the years. And the stats do bear that out as well. well. I, I was listening to a, a popular Australian cricket podcast um, where they were saying that, you know, the things that Australia, you know, they were, they were kind of saying, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a mm, season, you know, it's, mm, it's going to be an okay summer. But the things that you really get excited about as an Australian cricket fan when it comes to tests is tests against England, India and South Africa. And the others don't, don't matter mm. as much. And I don't, they undoubtedly weren't saying it to be disrespectful to New Zealand. But I, that's an interesting attitude that they, you know, their closest neighbours... They yeah. just don't seem to take them that seriously. Just back in, in out what my dad feels as well. He's yeah. chip on the shoulders, just getting mm. deeper by the <laughs> by the second. But I think it's um, yeah. I mean, actually, I mentioned that when I interviewed Williamson last year. I asked him about do you get frustrated that you don't get these these big fixtures or big enough series. And he just said, I don't envy the people who are having to organise the schedule, which I thought was very Kane Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> well, if New Zealand reach the top of the test rankings, they'll have to go past India, who won by an innings yet again at home this week, this time against Bangladesh. Their last nine home results are as follows. One by an innings and 239 runs, draw. One by an innings and 262 runs. One by an innings and 272 runs. One by 10 wickets. One by 203 runs. One by an innings and 137 runs, one by an innings and 202 runs, and one by an innings and 130 runs. That's quite good, isn't it? Mayank Agarwal continues brilliant start to a Test career with his second double century already. Um, but for me, the most eye-catching part of their win was how they didn't rely on their spin bowling at all. 15 of the 20 Bangladesh wickets to fall fell to pace. How far away do you think we are from talking about this India side in similar terms to the great Australia side? and the turn of the century in the West Indies side of the 70s and 80s? Uh, still a little way, I think. Uh, home record, I mean. <laughs> so they've only... Uh, all right, how many tests do you think they've lost at home since England beat them in 2012-13? One. One. So oh, I was going to say none to one. <laughs> one, so that was the Australia win where Smith played that genius innings and um, Steve O'Keefe to call his wickets. So at home, they're among the best ever. 
um, if not the best ever now. They must be getting towards that point. Um, away from home, they've still lost to England. They beat Australia, but that was in Australia without Smith and Warner. So there is that's quite a significant caveat. Mm. Um, they lost in South Africa. Yeah, they did. They had those three big away series in the same year that people were talking about. If they can win this, this would really nail them down to one of the all-time great sides. But I feel like they're a better cricket team now than they were then. I, I think they are. Certainly their seam options are incredible. They're doing all this without Bummer at the moment mm. as well. But it's interesting. When, when India won in Australia, Kohli said that victory meant more to him than the 2011 World Cup win. Uh, he said just winning away means so much. And I think his legacy as a batsman is absolutely secure. But him to be an all-time great Indian captain or the all-time great Indian captain, he knows that away wins will, will mm. kind of create that legacy. And that's why they mean so much to him. So there's still a little bit of away. And that was a big opportunity the year they just had. And they missed two chances. I wonder why they are opting less for, for spin these days. I mean, you guys probably know this, this better than me. I was reading about Ravi Jadeja, who seems to be, you know, they're talking about his batting more than his bowling mm. now. So, so I'm, I wonder why, why that's, that's kind of switching, you know, whether, whether the conditions, they're not, they're not preparing the conditions for spinners mm. in the same way that they did. I, I think it's just down to the options they have. I think players who've been around for a long time have just got better. So like Ishant Sharma was in the India team for ages when they didn't really have many seam bowling options. Then suddenly he gets to his 30s, he's bowling the best he's ever done and it's harder for him to get in the team. Uh, the emergence of Jaspreet Bumrah, Mohamed Shami, he's been around for a long time. He's, he's bowling. an amazing year, hasn't he? And he's he? bowled the best he's ever ever bowled. Uh, Dale Stain did a Q&A on Twitter last week and he was asked who's the best pace bowler in the world and he said on current form Mohamed Shami really? yeah that's interesting so I think they just it's just the options I don't they've think just it's they've got a beautifully yeah. balanced attack now haven't they and if you look particularly at home you look at they've bowled a side out for 160 and often on those scorecards you expect someone to take five or six wickets mm. but with India it rarely seems that way it three, seems like everyone's taken twos and threes <laughs> for uh, and the bowlers the seam bowlers don't have to bowl particularly long spells mm. which obviously an energy sapping heat is is really useful mm. The spinners are there when required, but actually they don't need to create these spinning tops in the way they previously have done because they've got the options available. And the pink ball, another pink ball test match. I remember the the one in Adelaide that we went to during the last Ashes, which I don't know what kind of aunt, what kind of questions it answered really that, but but that's going to be interesting for for both sides, isn't it, for for India and and Bangladesh because it's a whole new experience and one them. that India have been reluctant to embrace for for quite some time. But they India have got, I mean in terms of home results they're sorted, in terms of home support, in terms of people mm. actually at the ground, not so much. That India need to move to make that happen. There seems to be an awareness of that now. And I think a lot of it's come from Sarav Ganguly. It's, it's a decision he made within weeks of becoming the BCCI president. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. To, he obviously has an idea of what he wants to be done. So maybe we'll... we'll I mean, we've always kind of seen India as being the last people to... Uh, welcome change like DRS it took them years to realise this was good even T20s it took them until they won the T20 World Cup to take it seriously and launch the IPL so I wonder if you could see the same with day night cricket once they've started it they go full full on yeah full, well yeah. It, it, it would seem to make sense there in mm. terms of Often the temperature, uh, in terms of people being able to turn up after work, mm. um, in terms of people being able to watch on TV after work, I think, it, yeah, it, it seems like a good fit. Joe, what's your moment of the week? So my moment of the week was one, it, it wasn't really kind of particularly big news, which I thought was quite interesting in itself. So Afghanistan got their first ever T20 series victory over West Indies, uh, 2-1, they're playing in Lucknow, Northern India. Uh, Afghanistan lost the first match by 30 runs and then won the next two. Uh, fairly comfortably and this is beating the, the two-time world champions there wasn't Chris Gale there wasn't Andre Russell but it was still a, a pretty a strong, strong team. West Indian yeah. side um, and it just it just struck me again I know we've, we've been through this but 
how far Afghanistan have come in, in this decade as well. So we're, this decade is coming to a close. At the start of the last one, they hadn't played a full T20 international. They'd played three ODIs, I think. And in this decade, they've made six global world tournament appearances. Um, and they've got some of the star names of world cricket. Mm. The 100 draft had four Afghans in there. And it's interesting, in this victory over West Indies, Rashid Khan only took three wickets across the three games. So that idea that they're so dependent on Rashid Khan is, is obviously true sometimes, but not all the time. Um, and I don't know if you were on this podcast with me, perhaps not. Adam Holyoke came on during the World, World Cup and he has worked with Afghanistan as a fielding coach. Uh, and he said the talent there as well as the kind of love of the game is just so phenomenal. And he predicted that they'd win a world title in the next 10 years, which to me seemed a bit of a stretch. But actually, if you think their progress of the 10 years that just gone, mm. why not? You could see that you could see them winning a world T20. Well, what's the equivalent in of the right conditions? What's the equivalent of a team becoming in Afghanistan within 10 years now? Is it would be like a Nepal? Nepal's pro- probably the closest in terms of that kind of cricket mad mm infrastructure set up there even if the rest of the infrastructure is mm. is not quite there and of course as well, Afghanistan have played t- test cricket in this decade won two mm. of their first three test matches amazing win in Bangladesh mm. they've got a one-off test against West Indies in a week again in India uh, who's favourite for that I mean I'd say perhaps Afghanistan mm. with their with their spinners there it feels a little bit to me in the way of you know kind of overcoming great adversity in terms of, you know, the, 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 the political setup in Afghanistan, you know, the horrendous years that they, they went through under the Taliban, to come through that and to then emerge as, as a, a sporting force. It makes me feel a little bit like South Africa winning the Rugby World Cup recently and, you know, and, and breaking away from the shackles of apartheid mm. and bringing through these, these young black players who move through the system and then, you know, under an inspirational captain, they go and, and win the World Cup. I mean, this is a, a real story of, you know, triumph over tragedy and, and disaster and, and oppression. And, and you kind of think that, that there must be this, this grassroots, I don't know if Adam talked about this, back, back home in Afghanistan, how many young cricketers there are now who are desperate to play the game. We could see a, a real kind of, you know, a wave of, of brilliant young Afghan talent. That was through. part of his point, really. Mm. He said these kids just turn up at training and they've already got all these incredible skills that in other countries seem to take years to, mm. to develop. Um, one, the star man from that series, I, I should mention, so uh, his name was Karim Janat, who's the brother of former skipper um, Asghar Afghan, who's still on the side. And he's an all-rounder with no record to speak of. He he brought in for the second match, top score with 26, and then took five for 11. So he got his career best with the bat and ball in the same game <laughs> and was basically their man of the series. And he was in the World Cup squad, but only as a standby. Um, so this just shows the depth of, mm. of talent that's there as well. So yeah. the World Cup was a slightly odd one for Afghanistan because I think they really they let themselves down kind of on, off, on and off the pitch. There was just too much going on. There was even before the tournament, and they changed all the captains at the last minute. And you talk about South African rugby, there is clearly a structure in place to let all this talent come through. And that's probably the biggest issue that Afghanistan have got at the moment. Phil Simmons had some pretty harsh words for the the board when he left and, and he's got an excellent reputation as a coach. So it's Lance Cluson and now, can he get the support he needs to turn this incredibly exciting team into something a bit more um, sustainable and consistent? I think they're a much better T20 side than an ODI yeah, side as well. And with yeah. two T20 World Cups in two years, I think we'll see them prosper much better than they did in uh, the World Cup here. And also, another one of their young players came through, chap called Ramanullah Gurbaz, just 17. It's 79 in the decider. So they've got young players coming through. I mean, if you think about it, all their core players, with the exception of Naby, 
at like 21 and under. And also Naby's going to be playing when he's 60, isn't <laughs> yeah. he? He's, he's, I can't see him going anytime soon. That's a very good point. Um, there was an interesting story to come out of the women's big bash this week. Hobart Hurricanes wicketkeeper Emily Smith has been handed a 12-month ban for breaching Cricket Australia's anti-corruption code for posting a restricted video on her personal Instagram account. Smith was found guilty of posting a video on her personal Instagram account from the restricted players and match officials area that included the Hurricanes' team lineup an hour before the scheduled official release on Saturday the match was eventually abandoned without a ball being bowled thoughts on the severity of the ban I've kind of got mixed feelings about this really because it feels very sledgehammer to crack a nut really you know because of the, the scale of the the offense so the match was was washed out so you know so in the end it was it was theoretical but on the other hand all the players have drummed into them constantly the rules surrounding anti-corruption and using mobile phones in restricted areas and and I kind of think that you know you can't say oh well it was a, it was a women's game so it's it's less high profile mm. you know you you've got to say we have to judge everything by by the same high standard um and I feel I feel sorry for her I mean undoubtedly she you know I don't know whether she forgot or she didn't think it, that, that it mattered or didn't think she was doing anything wrong but if you've got to say well them's the rules then then everyone has to abide by them I read a follow up story this morning which suggested the players association is suggesting that the player wasn't informed that actually she was in an area where she shouldn't have her phone and therefore the team officials are at fault and they've also been reprimanded. Mm. If that is the case, then that feels like that would be an opportunity to be more lenient than they have mm. been here. Mm. It's wor- It's not a, it's a 12-month suspended. It's a suspend, suspend, nine-month suspended, I think. Yeah. It, so. But that basically means she'll miss the rest of the Australian mm. season. It does feel a little bit like the kind of classic Cricket Australia tying themselves in knots to appear mm. as clean squeaky clean as they possibly can and I, I it just feels like they could have perhaps been slightly more flexible although I, I certainly do take Eddie's point once once you start making allowances in one area then that can certainly open up problems in in others yeah um I saw some suggestions on Twitter that maybe this band suggests that the players in the women's big bash don't get given the same education when it comes to anti-corruption but I don't think that is the case I'd Smith's... be amazed if they're not exactly the exactly. same and they're such a the, the two things come together the men and women's big bash and I think they'll have I'd be amazed if it's not exactly the same Smith's not a rookie either she's this, she's been in every big bash so this is her fifth one so kind of like why has she done this now so what you were saying does does kind of add up well, apparently the, the post was apparently a, making a joke about her position in the, in the batting order the piece described her as a notable prankster um, but I don't, I don't really know what that means um, and it's certainly not mitigation but it just adds up to the kind of how sad this, mm. the thing is that this, this women's season's over mm. um, So big news from county cricket emerged last night Somerset have been handed a 24 point penalty 12 of those suspended for two years for preparing what was deemed a substandard poor pitch for their title decider in the championship against Essex in September The Cricket Discipline Commission found them guilty of preparing a pitch with excessive unevenness of bounce, and they also concluded that Somerset did not produce the best quality pitch they could have prepared. Ellie, again, that's that seems quite harsh as well. Well, yes, again, but I kind of repeat what I just said that you know, if I think Somerset, you know, they're, they're not they're not kind of quite. I mean, haven't, they haven't been punished for this before, but but they have been warned. For this, before, before, the line. And, and we, we've kind of we make jokes all the time about cider bad, don't we? And mm. about about, about the, the pitches being so so suitable for their for their their you know formidable spin attack. But I mean, in the end, I mean, you you were there, yes. You you know you you did that game in in, in the rain, and and I suppose we should make the point that even if they 
you know, the, the 12 points, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had a 12 point, they wouldn't have cleared Essex by 12 points, even if they'd won that game. So, you know, Somerset wouldn't have won the county championship or they might have won it on, on the day, but they would have now had it taken away from them. So, so somebody said, which you know. Which would have been huge. Which would have been huge. You know, the, the championship would have been decided in a committee room when Somerset, after, when Somerset have finally won one as yeah. well. I can't, yeah. yeah. Did, I mean, did it look, I mean, there were a lot of wickets, a lot of wickets fell in a short space of time, didn't they? When they There was play. that crazy last afternoon where the game was meandering to a, a draw with no chance result where loads of Essex wickets fell to give Somerset a time tiny chance of winning but over the course of the game I would say two things number one if you actually look at the wickets that fell there's not excessive bounce you wouldn't say that the ball turned more than it ever should do there were periods of the t- uh, within the game where batting looked all right Alistair Cook scored 83 runs across the two innings he was only dismissed once at one point Essex were 102 for one Somerset put on 59 for the last wicket in their first innings I wonder if because of people's because people talk of side around and have done for a long time that the focus is on the spin so 17 out of the 21 wickets in the game fell to spin bowling but I actually wonder if it was more to do with specifically the unevenness of bounce that had nothing to do with the spin that was why they were punished um, I seem to remember some balls off pace bowlers actually keeping quite low and some bouncing on day one so I wouldn't be surprised because the, the, the cricket this had been commissioned they haven't actually released their report yet mm. and Somerset aren't going to decide whether or not to appeal the points deduction until that report is released but I'll be interesting to see what they actually say and I think there's a chance that it might not actually be down to excessive turn it would more down to the unevenness of bounce well, if it's from what I saw on the telly, um, I thought if it is if it is down to spin, then I don't think this is particularly fair. Um, we interviewed Simon Harmer shortly before that match, actually, and he's quite a frank bloke and says what he thinks. Okay. And basically said people aren't regular playing spin in this country, and he he picked out James Vince and Gary Balance as two players who could play spin and couldn't think of anyone else. Uh, so what I saw was actually people playing spin badly. Uh, and I have some sympathy with Somerset. I mean, in that situation, I think any other county in the country would have been prepared a result wicket. Mm. And and that it's not like preparing a spinning track is necessarily when you've got Simon Harmer in the opposition. That's not that, that's not kind of trying to force a result in your favour. That's just trying to force a result. That's just to make sure there's a result in that game. And I, I, well, I mean, to what extent c- counties have the choice of? preparing the wickets they want to prepare to, to, to suit themselves. I mean, mm. it's, you know, it's the whole... And that's and that's why, you know, we've 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 changed things around. You know, the toss is different. Mm. Now you kind of take that slight element of, of you know, of, of, of a lottery out of it. But, but to what extent should counties be allowed to prepare the wickets they want to? Or even countries? There seems to be a natural uh, resistance to seeing pitches that turn lots in England. In that game, the scores were 160, 203... Uh, and 45 for one. They're not incredibly low scores. Kent, two years ago, the average first in score there was 158 or something. Yeah. So, and uh, this uh, it feels like there is a risk here that Somerset are being victimised a bit strong, but picked out unfairly here. Because you, I haven't, I can't claim to have seen any cricket Canterbury this year. But around the around the country, there are some pretty low scores. Mm. Are Somerset being looked at more closely because of their reputation and because of the profile of that game and the mm. fact they're in the mix for champion for the title? Um, or because their pitch is genuinely much worse than than everyone else's, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but there is, there does seem to be a risk that Somerset are constantly picked out mm. here, and these things go in cycles. Next time England tour India and get skittled for a hundred, everyone's like, well, we need more turning tracks mm. in county cricket, and then Somerset become kind of talked about as as a 
as progressive and helpful in in that sense. Yeah, there were some really high quality players playing that game. If you wanted spin bowlers to take wickets on a track that was turning a bit, there's no bowler that you want more in the country at the moment than Simon Harmer and Jack Leach. And then in terms of uh, batsman's ability against spin bowling, there's no batsman mm. in the world, arguably, you'd want rather than Alistair Cook. So I'm going to wait to form an opinion until I've read the report because I think it could be just down to the bounce. It might That's what it might come down to because I d- I'm not sure it spun excessively. And they did explicitly say in, in the announcement that there was excessive unevenness of bounce. Also in county cricket news, lots happening in county cricket for midwinter. Um, Liam Livingston has announced that he will not be playing in the IPL next season in favour of playing in the county championship. Joe, what do you think about that? Um, well, it's quite. There's, there's an interesting thread, isn't there? That by getting his deal in the hundred, he's obviously less interested in getting a deal in the IPL because that money is secured. And aside from the money, he will just be missing a huge chunk of the season with mm. Lancashire, and he's. He's been club captain before there. He's come through the ranks. He's a, he's a dedicated to that county and, and understand he doesn't want to miss a huge chunk of that season. So are we getting to a point suddenly where the 100 is actually keeping some players in county cricket? I'm not sure many county diehards would want to admit that, but there is there is a potential for a, for a plus side here in that sense. Yeah, I mean, Livingston had been released by the Rajasthan Royals last week although Lancashire said in their statement that Livingston had mutually parted company interesting phrasing um, but I guess either way the news is that he's not put his name forward for next year's for the draft in December for next year's IPL where he did last year Livingston is set to earn more than double the money from his IPL contract in the 100 so his his IPL contract is worth £55,000 his 100 contract is worth £125,000 and yeah I, th- I, I do genuinely think there will be fr- like fringe players who would only be fringe IPL players who play Red Bull cricket as well who will be looking at it well I can't miss that much of a county season I, I just like seeing batsmen talking about having aspirations to play test cricket mm. you know because that feels to me like something that that is refreshing you know it's, it goes back to what we were saying about Joss Butler earlier on that you know he's keen to work on his technique and and you know remove any doubts about his ability in red ball cricket but uh, I think Ben Stokes was tweeting something or posted something on on Instagram the other day where he was saying you know really looking forward to playing the finest form of the game mm. um in 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 terms of test cricket and just to have that <clears throat> just have those little messages coming out there saying that's what I want to do you know I can I can yeah I can make a shed load of cash in in the IPL um or I can say right I'm going to play some county cricket and try and put myself in into contention for for test cricket I guess that's exactly the point that previously players did actually have to make that choice whereas now you don't you can earn that money whilst also playing the county championship now which has never never really happened before in this country um and I, and I guess it's also interesting that Livingston is probably at this moment closer to the T20 side with the T20 World Cup next year than the Test side. So yeah, I think it's quite quite a nice story. And the IPL can be can be a mixed mag. It depends on your circumstances. I know Jason Roy had a miserable time there, wasn't getting picked, and then came home early. Sam Billings, on the other hand, has has done very well out of it. Even when he hasn't played, he's told me before he just gets so much out of it being in the changing room with those players. But mm. but that's that's not for everyone. And Liam Livingston, I think, did he play four or five? Games Four games year, last season, which is not which is not bad. And he did he did a right in a couple as well. Yeah, didn't he? and he's also not turning his back on T Twenty cricket. Full stop. He's still doing basically every other league you can play. I think he's in the Mazandi Super League at the moment, and he's put his name forward for the Pakistan Super League. And obviously, he's been playing the Blast and the Hundred. So, 
I guess the IPL is no longer the be all and end all. So, yeah, for that so we're saying this, this is this is an unexpected benefit of the hundred. I, I genuinely think so. Like because you well, said well, it early, was, you can take the hits on Twitter all, <laughs> all along. We got players like uh, so Joe Denley, for example. He went. Was it the last year that he went to the IPL? I, yeah. I don't think Joe Denley would go to the IPL in the same circumstances again. Or, or well, now he's a test regular number three, isn't exactly, he? Exactly, yeah. a test number three who's got a pretty cushy hundred gig as well. So, yeah, yeah. I and mean, there are so many options for players nowadays. Finally, every now and then on the podcast, we have our read of the week. Uh, this week, it's something that's been written, but not yet published. Ellie has written uh, the My Golden Summer feature for an upcoming issue of the Wizarding Cricket Monthly magazine. Not this issue coming out. The so it's read of the week, but you can't read it for about a month, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So listen closely. Oh, I'm very honoured. Thank you. <laughs> so listen closely. Um, so Ellie, without giving too much away, what's it about? What's your year? Well, Joe asked me if I was interested in writing a My Golden Summer. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. But I can't write about... 2019, <laughs> which I kind of think will be, you know, in 20 years' time, if you come to me and say, write about my golden summer, I'll say it's, I, one, I, think. I think there's going to be a lot of people in contention for that. But, but in some ways, actually, the summer of 2019 was was the, was the summer that that you know I've always kind of been around cricket. I've always loved cricket. It was always the thing that I really wanted to do. You know, when I got into into sports journalism, and this was the first time in years that I've had a whole summer of cricket, you know, kind of back to back. But my first summer where I just did cricket every game, went to every match, was 1987. But it wasn't to do with the World Cup. It wasn't to do with Pakistan playing over over here in Test Series. It was to do with minor counties cricket in Shropshire. Because at the time I was working for BBC Radio Shropshire, it was my first job for the BBC. Um, and, and I got to go to all the home games and a couple of the away games as well. Um, and it, it just, it was lovely to kind of relive that driving through the beautiful Shropshire countryside because it is one of the loveliest counties if you've never been then it's just it's just stunning you know it's kind of really varied it's you know it's got hills it's got lakes it's you know it's got kind of quite the the interesting industrial Ironbridge Gorge area as well Um, and going to grounds and just being part of a community really a cricketing community which which I'd always dreamt of being when I was a teenager Um, and getting to know the other journalists. I mean, we were a very small band, but say, also how many, the players. How many of you well, were covering? Well, there was, the, well, there was, there was me and the guy from the Shropshire Star, really, <laughs> <laughs> um, and a few others that popped in and out for, for the occasional games. Because I mean, Shropshire weren't they weren't high profile in minor counties senses. I mean, at the time there were people like I mean Graham Roop, you know, former Surrey and England um, star playing for Berkshire. Uh, was it Buckinghamshire? It was, I think it was Buckinghamshire. Um, and and. Barry Wood was playing for Cheshire. Um, and actually, the year after I left Shropshire, uh, John Abrahams came in, you know, from Lancashire. So, so that there was there was this movement of, you know, big former and, and very recent former county players mm. going to play in minor counties. But at the time, it was just a bunch of guys from Shropshire, really, playing playing around around these, these lovely grounds. And, and I loved every second of it. That's really interesting. And you talk uh, about being kind of one of the first female journalists to be working in cricket at that time uh it's obviously a serious issue but you, you d- deal with it in a in a very <laughs> in a very funny way as well um but it was obviously you you were you were kind of an alien in that in that sense mm. and you got some was it it didn't sound like people were nasty as such but more kind of suspicious well there that? was a, there was a curiosity i think i think people who are working in women who are working in sports journalism in the 1980s would would recognize that that almost that sense that you know to be a woman working in sport you must be either in it because you fancy the players and you want to 
get off with stroke marry a cricketer or you want to get on in the world of sports journalism by using your feminine wiles and, you know, kind of the implication of, of pillow talk, really, that, right, that you, yeah. would, you would get an advantage by by being a woman. And and, and and so it was, you know, it was trying to prove that actually you could you you were a serious journalist. You know, it's trying to prove your journalistic credentials. And it's and it was it was it was difficult because, you know, there were there was a lot of I, actually I've got to say that the Shropshire players took to, took to me very quickly. But I, I always found actually in doing football as well in those days that if you could prove that you knew what you were on about, then they would accept you pretty quickly. Um, and I was very lucky as well to have bosses who at no stage questioned my ability or desire to, to cover sport or cricket generally. Um, and, you know, my, my very first job actually in, in local radio um, was in Worcester, as a commercial radio station in Worcester. And within a few weeks, I was down at New Road reporting on, on cricket, you know, hourly bulletins. So, so I, I had enlightened people as my, as my bosses in those days. So, so but, but it, was, it, was, it, was inter- it was an interesting time to be working as a woman, you know, and you became very good... You know, now you would say in in the, in the kind of the hashtag Me Too era that some of some of the stuff that was said was, said was unacceptable. You know, it was very kind of um, suggestive, a lot of it, or flirtatious if you're being kind. But you just had to kind of think, this is the way things are at the moment, and we will get through this, and we'll get to the other side, and and life will become easier for for young female reporters now, which I think generally speaking it is, with a, a few notable exceptions you know I'm kind of thinking Chris Gale a couple of years ago but but the profile those exceptions get shows how far that's well exactly exactly right you know the fact that those 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 moments are called out now you know those moments were part and parcel of the job well that was shown with the reaction I mean everyone was horrified afterwards but Mm. the actual at the time everyone in the studio was kind of chortling along while Mm. while Gale was was doing that horrendous interview yeah i mean the, the world the world has changed hugely and and i'm i'm you know i always say that these the kind of attitudes that were around there and the way that women were treated um was not acceptable but it was accepted mm. so and you didn't want to rock the boat either you know that was that was very much part of the attitude in those days um but um but actually it was it was quite interesting there was a, a piece that i wrote for um a publication called the minor counties quarterly um, and I found, I'd obviously kept it because I'd written this piece. So I found it in a box at home. Um, and and the, the, I can't remember exactly the exact quotes, were, what, what they were, but it was, it was along the lines of, you know, one, once I'm there to explain that, I, once I explain that I'm not there to make the tea, um, then I, generally speaking, become accepted. Um, and, you know, I, I may seem like a bit of a freak, but, um, but, but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not one, obviously. Um, so, so, I mean, it was... It was it was highly unusual, but but it was it was fun. I mean, you know, I, and and in a way, you almost think I'm going to challenge myself to to do as good a job as I possibly can and and prove people wrong mm. to an extent. But but yes, it was it was a. I, I don't want to kind of focus on the negatives because it was it was. No, but that such and also the tone of, the tone of the piece doesn't come across as as negative as well. Um, and it's a lovely. It's t- because it's my favorite. It's one of my favorite features in the magazine actually each month because people really throw themselves into it and I think really enjoy writing mm. it. And some people talk more about themselves, some people talk more about the cricket, but we don't often have minor counties. It should be said, actually, we've got a Shropshire double. We've got Shropshire in this issue. Uh, uh, 
writer called Scott Oliver does our Wisden and Club Cricket Hall of Fame each month. Yeah. Do you know John Foster and Ed yes. Foster? Yeah, John was captain of, of the Shropshire team in, in my in my time there. Okay, so yeah, it's him and his son Ed are the joint Hall of Famers in our upcoming issue. Wow. John Foster is going to feature in successive Wisden Cricket Monthlies. That's amazing. <laughs> That's definitely the most we've had. That's definitely a, a podcast first talk about Shropshire. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it so is. It's a lovely place. I mean, and and I think I think when you you know we we are you something to say we're sitting we're sitting here at the Oval and sitting here in the media centre, and you're so far away from you know you, you we get close in enough to the players mm. in some ways you know with the press conferences and and actually they I think this England team particularly are pretty accessible yeah. and and easy to get on with, um, but but when you're covering minor counties cricket and there isn't a press box, you know we had a radio car which was this gigantic Ford Cortina estate which I don't think had power steering so it was extremely difficult to negotiate the country lanes of, of Shropshire but you'd park it on the boundary and every hour I'd just go and go over there and you'd put the put the aerial up and then you'd broadcast back into the news bulletins on, on Radio Shropshire and then you'd kind of go and wander around and you'd you know you'd be chatting to chatting to the players on the boundary you know if they the ones who were waiting to go into bat and and it was just that that lovely sense of everyone being part of the same the same group and the same gang. That's to come in Wiz and Cricket Monthly issue. That's out in late December, just after Christmas. Okay. Um, nice Christmas present. Nice Christmas present. Yeah. Although it'll be late because it's out on the twenty seventh. Yeah, yeah. Get you, get you, get you. <laughs> Although you can get a subscription. Yes. Is the Christmas yes. present, and then that will arrive on the twenty seventh, which is like a double whammy for Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. Who wouldn't want that? Head to wisdom.com for that. Oh, I've got, to, I've got to say my moment. Got, I was gonna, I was gonna prompt you. Yeah. Um. So I've, I've been on holiday for the, for the last nice. week. So norm, if I, I don't often say what my moment of the week is. I normally forget. Um. But I definitely wouldn't normally have one when I'm on holiday. But I had two chance encounters with professional cricketers on, on my, on my week off. So number one. Can you tell us where you were? Uh. Yeah. 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 So what first half was in Edinburgh. Second half was in Dublin. First half in Edinburgh. Um. Mark Watt, the Scotland left arm. Uh, spinner who's key to their qualification for the T20 World Cup a couple of weeks ago uh, was playing up front for a football team that I was effectively managing the Edinburgh University Cricket Football Club so the Edinburgh University Cricket Club has a football team uh, their manager was not there that week uh, so I, I know the half the boss. players so I came in for one game 100% record 5-3 win against quite a good team actually uh, and uh, yeah, Watty scored two goals, played up front, uh, played You got the well. best out of him. Yeah, yeah, I told him at half-time to come a bit deeper sometimes. <laughs> um, so that was, that was part one. Uh, part two was when I was in Guinness, when, uh, when I was in Guinness, when I was in Dublin, I went to the Guinness That's factory. That's revealing there, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got the truth first. Yeah, so I went to the Guinness factory, and um, as I was coming out, I saw a guy, I was like, I think that's, I think that's Ryan Higgins. And I didn't want to say anything to him because he was on holiday, I'm on holiday. And also, what, what have I really got to say to him in that circumstance? Uh, and then I heard someone shout, Higgins! I like, yeah, that's definitely Ryan Higgins. So well, where was the Ryan Higgins at Guinness Factory scoop on <laughs> wisdom.com? <laughs> yes, this is... Next time, next time. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Ellie. Lovely to see thanks, you. Thanks as ever, Joe. Cheers, Yaz. We're going daily for the New Zealand series. So if you can't hack staying up all night to watch it, we'll be recording short 15-minute pods each day that will be available by the time you wake up. Our lineup will involve a combination of myself, a Wisden colleague in London, as well as Wisden Almanac editor Lawrence Booth, who's out there in New Zealand. Cheers, folks, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends. But also, if you're feeling extra kind, leave us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choosing. See you next time.
Sports Social Podcast Network.